Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Okay, middle of February, here we go. Before we jump in, I wanted to uh, make two quick announcements. We've started something called the Mockingbird Digest, which is a, a bi-weekly email update that uh, we're going to sort of tailor-made uh, that incorporates all the various things that Mockingbird's doing, sort of uh, recent posts, recent podcasts, announcements about the stuff, things from the archives. You know, that we're kind of jumping on, I guess, the e-newsletter bandwagon, but if you want to sign up, you can do that at ember.com should be fairly easy. Uh, first one's already gone out and we've gotten great uh, response to it. The other thing is that we are really, you know, six weeks away from the beginning of our conference season, and that is two different conferences, one in Tyler, Texas, uh, the Yeehaw. second through the fourth of April, and uh, it's we're calling it the Mockingbird Festival this year. Uh, if you're anywhere near Tyler, Texas, come on down. It's going to be fantastic. Will Willimon is speaking, Carrie Willard, Jason Michelli will be there. I'm going to get to, I'll be there. Uh, Jacob Smith uh, will be there. Just going to be fantastic time. But then the main event, as we know, is uh, in New York, and we'll be recording a live episode of this there um, in some form or another, and that's going to be, um, that's April 23rd through the 25th in New York City. And those who listened to the last episode know that Tom Holland is no joke when it comes to uh, both what he has to say and how he's going to say it. Uh, Tara Isabella Burton is speaking. She's uh, just absolutely murdering it on her pieces these days. Um, and then, you know, just a whole cast of characters from Mockingbird. Uh, I'm very excited to hear from my younger brother, Simeon, but, you know, there'll be the same old song recording. It's going to be a, a, a fantastic party. There's even a special film uh, event that's happening that I'm not even allowed to really talk about. So just put that under your cap. Um, okay, announcement's over. My cap is on and it's put under. Florida man, R.J. Heyman. <laughs> Here I am. What do you, what do you have to say? Uh, you know, just just another day in paradise, Dave. What are you going to do? Uh, <laughs> Basking in the rays? Yeah, I've had a great week. I was actually, I was back in um, Houston last week for a couple days because I'm um, just seeing family and, and being with, with my boys. Drove back to Houston in a single day with my son Jackson, 16 hours, 1150 miles. So that was an experience uh, coming back. And um, Yeah, it's just been great. I continue to bump into people that I know from other eras, stages, seasons of my life. Like that's happened three times this week. And so it uh it just feels like we are where we're supposed to be. Mm. And uh we're thankful to be here. So yeah. That's Sarah. Great. What's up, Sarah? SC. Um, Dave is murdering it like a more PC way of saying killing it. I was like, did he just say murdering it? <laughs> like the dad version, like he just heard people are saying killing it. He's like, you know what? Let's make it more sophisticated. <laughs> well, you're Let's right. Make it, it more intentional, more premeditated. <laughs> it came out of my mouth, and even while it was coming out of my mouth, slaughtering it. That's you're like, quite right. Sarah's gonna make fun of me. <laughs> He didn't say cr- crushing it because he's not crushing in finance. Crushing it. But, uh, oh, I can't, every time I can't people say crushing term. it, I just think of Jesus's body on the cross. Like it's like <laughs> with the image, just is very deeply Catholic comes right to my head. I'm like, can you stop saying that? Um, we're good. Uh, Ash Wednesday's next week, which is kind of crazy, and so we'll be doing that. Um, I'll be doing that on a college campus for the first time, which is kind of uh, it's kind of exciting. Yeah, so we're good. Um, well, we've got a lot to talk about today. I think um, we're going to begin here with a, an article that hits pretty close to the bone. Uh, maybe maybe not for you, but definitely for me. It's by Kate Murphy, who just released a book of the same name. Uh, the title of the the article is "You're Not Listening." Here's why. This was in the New York Times. Uh, You're not listening. Let me finish. That's not what I said. After I love you, these are among the most common refrains in close relationships. 
During my two years researching a book on listening, I learned something incredibly ironic about interpersonal communication. The closer we feel towards someone, the less likely we are to listen carefully to them. It's called the closeness communication bias, and over time it can strain and even end relationships. Uh, She goes on to explain, once you know people well enough to feel close, there's an unconscious tendency to tune them out because you think you already know what they're going to say. It's kind of like when you've traveled a certain route several times and are no longer, uh, you no longer notice signposts and scenery. But people are always changing. The sum of daily interactions and activities continually shapes us. So none of us are the same as we were last month, last week, or even yesterday. The closeness communication bias is at work when romantic partners feel they don't know each other anymore or when parents discover their children are up to things they never imagined. We all develop stereotypes of the people we know well, and those stereotypes lead us to make mistakes. And they give the example of someone getting, a man getting his wife a a really awful uh, present for her birthday. The closeness communication bias not only keeps us from listening to those we love, it can also keep us from allowing our loved ones to listen to us. It may explain why people in close relationships sometimes withhold information or keep secrets from one another. Harvard sociologist Mario Louis Small found that slightly more than half the time, people confided their most pressing and worrisome concerns to people with whom they had weaker ties, even people they encountered by chance, rather than to those they had previously said were closest to them. Needless to say, a lack of listening is a primary contributor to feelings of loneliness. And uh, we've talked before about the um, widespread feelings of loneliness, and that's going to be a bit of a theme, in fact, this week. Um, but listening, listening well, <laughs> not listening. Um, uh, you guys listen to me so well every week, every time we record this. I, I, I've never said it to you, but have you, has someone ever accused you of not listening well? Um, yeah, all the time. I mean, that. yes. Yeah. I read something recently that was like, you shouldn't be, um, you shouldn't be planning what you're going to say while the other person's talking. And I was like, wait, so what do I do? i mean it's a real challenge like um yeah there's a book that day that your mom has recommended a woman who talks about listening Mm, and long and long yeah Yeah. and so this is the third time you've told me her name and i there's something in me that was reluctant to write it down and order the book but i know i need to you're not listening sarah (laughs) um I, when I was reading this, I was thinking about my first spiritual director uh, in Atlanta and how I guess she'd been married. It seemed like forever. It was probably 25 years. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, my God, it's so long. Um, how, and I asked her, like, how have you been married to the same person for that long? I guess because Josh and I were engaged. I asked her that. She was like, oh, I haven't been ma- married to the same person. I've been married to 15 different people. Mm. You know, like you have you people are you, your spouse is going to change, and what is that going to look like, and what is that going to mean? So I actually thought about that in this piece because I, while I think you know she very generously names all these different relationships in which this happens, I think this happens a lot in marriage. It also happens with our children, where we can kind of say, which feeds into what we're going to talk about later, but can we can really feed into like, well, I have the kind of kid who is like this, which means they're going to say this, and they're going to be worried about this. And so there's really not any point in me listening to them, right? Mm-hmm. It's funny, Dave, that you said that we listen so well to you when we do the podcast, because I often do, not always, but I listen uh, to the podcast when it comes out. And I'm, I, I'm always, always struck because you guys said so much stuff that I didn't actually hear because I I was thinking so hard about what I was going to say. It's like, oh my gosh, I, you know, uh, I wish I'd heard them say that the first time. But this article uh, just rang so many of my bells, and I, so much I could say. Um, I'll say a few things, hopefully not too much. First thing is, uh, I speak quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons I speak quickly is because, and I can say this now because he's passed away. Um, I never felt like my father listened to me. He always assumed he knew what I was going to say, and he finished my sentences. And so it's like when I spoke with him, especially when I was trying to communicate something important to him, it was like, I have to say this quickly enough so that he won't correct my sentences with what he thinks I'm going to say in an incorrect way, thereby make it pa- making it painfully clear that he actually has no idea who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've experienced that. Um, mm-hmm. And then also, 
in our marriage, uh, absolutely a hundred percent that it is it is hard to listen to each other. But I think there's m- more of a reason than just assuming you know the person. I think when you're very close to somebody. It is hard to listen to them, especially when they're going through something difficult or negative, because you're always thinking about, how is this going to affect me? How is this going to affect me? Or if they're talking about someone that's hurt them, then you get angry at the person who has hurt your spouse. And so um, it's difficult to be an empathetic, but sort of also dispassionate listener in the context of marriage, because again, you're thinking about how what your spouse is going through negatively might affect you. And let's also face it, a lot of the negative emotions you have in a marriage are towards your spouse. And it's difficult to listen to them when they are expressing hurt or pain that may be as a result of something that you've done. Um, But the third thing, because I feel like I had a bit of a breakthrough with this recently um, as the result of some marriage therapy and listening to Esther Perel's Where Shall We Begin? So good. And then so good. And then also thinking about Ephesians 5, where Paul talks about, you know, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Also good. All, well, you know, also good. Some people have a tough time with that, uh, you know, that portion of Paul's writing. But I remember thinking how um the act of listening, really listening, is an act of submission. Mm. Because what you're doing is you are submitting to another person's understanding of the world. And you are, for just a moment, setting aside your own perspective, your own needs, desires, wants, fears, whatever, and you're trying to walk a mile in their shoes. And if you can do that, if you can submit uh, to someone else's understanding of things, even if it's their understanding of you, that just automatically is so healing, so unbelievably healing to feel heard, to feel felt, um, to to feel, and not just heard, but actually felt, to feel like another person really feels your 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 pain. And I found that to be um, incredibly healing and helpful in the context of marriage and other loving um relationships. So mm. anyway, those are my thoughts. I always think about, you know, we do premarital counseling here at our church. One one of the things we we talk about is the mythologies that you bring into a relationship of your family's like this and my family's like that. And you're the quiet one and I'm the active one, or I'm the one who's good with money and you're the one who's good with, you know, social life. Or I, whatever it is, these kind of types as we're about to talk about but it's it's a mythology um and even if it's true 99% of the time it's still definitely not true 1% of the time and um it's that people in love relationships and this is very much true with kids too uh when you start to write the script for one another when you when you kind of you you complete their sentences but really you've you've already written their script and um i think it's it's kind of tough for I mean, I'm a, I fancy myself a writer, and like so that that those that kind of uh, uh, casting is going on in my brain, or it's it's hard to it can be hard to shut off. But I know that when I stop listening, it's because I think I know what uh, my wife is going to say, and I don't I don't want to hear it, or I um, have feel like I have heard it before, and um, there's a risk involved in just um, the submission, I guess you, you could say, RJ, and like something dangerous about allowing whatever it is that is going to be said to be said. But I, I find that any time we're writing the script for someone, it's usually some form of judgment, even if it's wrapped up in our love for them, that uh, comes across as silencing and uncaring. The other thing I'll say is that I've got a child who struggles with halting speech, and um, just he's got a lot to say, but he can't quite get it out or get it out as fast as his contemporaries, shall we say. And it, it impacts a lot of um, his life. And I, I don't think we didn't really, really realize this. We thought it was other stuff going on, but it was really a speech issue and that mm. he couldn't actually get the words out, the, that processing, those, those synapses weren't quite firing as quickly. And it's very frustrating for him. And it made him angry at uh, teachers, and it made him angry at other kids and impacted his social life. But then my, my, my wife and I, we would sort of wanted to sort of, you know, 
get the show on the road sometimes when he was trying to tell a story or something like that. And then you start to fill in the, 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 the blanks for him. And it just absolutely enraged him. It always made it worse. Yeah, I'm sure. And so the process of loving this kid is even when it's a terrible story told in a very roundabout way is to sit there and die to oneself and whatever that, mm. uh, that's what grace is, I guess. You're dying to your agenda for that particular five minutes and listening to some story as it comes out very slowly. Um, but I think that when we figured out it was a speech issue and a listening, and therefore a listening issue and not feeling listened to, that was driving the other behavior, that that, um, that was the key that unlocked uh, compassion and actually so a little bit of forward momentum for this child. Yeah, I mean, I, the thing with children I, I was thinking about when I was reading this was that like we are moving so quickly in 2020 that we almost lose the space to be surprised by our children, right? Because we're just like into one activity, into the next activity. Um, yesterday, my daughter had to get her her cheerleader photos taken at school. And so I had sent her in the morning in with her cheer bag and not to call anybody out, but her dad um, left it in the back of his car. And so when I came to take her right in to get the pictures, of course, and I'm late and I've got my other kid with me and we've not been pleasant to each other. And, and I walk in and she, and I have to find her, I have to get the bag. So I'm like, you know, I'm super like, just not happy with anybody. Um, which is awkward when you're the priest's wife, right? <laughs> right? Because like I'm walking through the building, everyone's like, hey, Sarah, hey, Sarah. And I'm just like silently putting up a wave hand and glaring straight ahead. Like, and everyone's like, <laughs> is she telling me to stop talking or, is it, you know? So, um, so anyway, I'm sitting there and he's, you know, it's like you, that, th- that thing is apparent. I'm sure you guys do this where like you finally make it to the basketball game or you finally make it to wherever you are and you're like in an uncomfortable chair staring at your kid. And, I was watching the other little girls go and they were so um, like they posed, you know, and they looked kind of awkward and funny and sweet, like five-year-old girls who, you know, were like trying to be teenagers, but not really getting it. And then my daughter went up and she put one hand on one hip and popped the other hip out to the side and her cheer coach like turned and looked at me and she's like, who taught her how to do that? I mean, it was like, and it's not that anyone taught her. It's that it is intrinsic to who Annie Condon is. And like, no amount of feminism is going to wear it out of her. You know what I mean? But like, it was such a beautiful moment where I was like, who is this kid going to be though? You know what I mean? Like, mm. like totally surprised by her. Um, And I think that's when I read this, what I think about is that we don't have the space to be surprised by each other anymore because we're moving so quickly and we're just like, I know, I know, I know that or we're in this space. And I think this is very true in marriage and this is a very broad generalization, but in marriage where it's all about our day, you totally nailed this. It's all about our welfare, right? So for men, when your wife comes home and she's really upset about something, you just want to fix it because and this is a broad generalization. I don't need your emails, people. But the emotional... <laughs> what, what, I wonder what you're going to say, Sarah. The I emotional welfare of your house is feels like it's like it's up for grabs, right? Like, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Like, there's a certain amount of, like, men just want to fix this because, like, they just want the emotional welfare of the house to be okay. Whereas when men come home, and they often come home with something about work... And they'll be like, oh, you know, whatever complaint about work. There's an intrinsic, ancient, maybe even not even necessary in the, you know, financial breakdown of your household. But thing in women where it's our physical welfare that kind of we're like, no, no, no. Like, you can't have any problems. We don't need to hear about this. Like, just shut it down, shut it down. I don't want to hear this. You know what I mean? I don't want to hear this tape. Mm. And so I think there, there's a point in marriage at which we kind of have to name that um, so that we're not shutting each other up because we're super anxious, you know, um, and that maybe we'll be surprised by each other. So I don't know. Yeah, that's totally true that that fear is the most primal human emotion, right? Mm -hmm. That everything is geared towards the preservation of self and the preservation of family. And anything which could be construed to threaten that is automatically, uh, yes, is terrifying. And and you just Mm want to, you want to shut it down. You don't want to listen. You want to fix, you want to, and which are all so destructive to uh, genuine listening. And, and I'll say, sir, you kind of said this, it's not just kids that are fascinating. It's 
adults too, you know. And when I've yeah. listened to people who are really good listeners, I think about Ira Glass on this. Sometimes the interviews he does and the get the things he gets people to say on This American Life because he is curious. Yeah, um, and that's another. That was another. Uh, big word, you know, in moments when my wife and I, you know, we're doing therapy is like, can you be curious yes. about what you're, about what the other is experiencing? And yeah. not just someone you're ministering to, but actually someone you're living with, right? you know, it's and not It's easier assume. to be curious about someone you're ministering it to. It is. It is. Because it's also not threatening. You know, it's not right. threatening. Right. Because um, like, it's not going to affect you either way. It's not going to really yeah. affect you. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but can you get, um, can you get past sort of the fear and the pain and get curious to the root of what's actually going on, which then of course builds intimacy, Right. And gets you what you want, you know, sort of uh, strengthens the, your, your your bond, even in the midst of turbulent times. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what people, that's what you really want is someone who loves you and to be loved and to be known, even when things are difficult. Because like newsflash, life doesn't stop getting, <laughs> doesn't stop getting difficult right. or scary, you know, but having someone to share it with um, makes it a little bit easier. That's very, that's very, I mean, I think that's, Totally true, and and it's very convicting. I mean, it's it's amazing to think that God uh, listens this way. I remember mm. uh, today we just put up a thing. Um, I just put up a meme on our Instagram account from my father from uh, his book Grace and Practice, um, and it's sort of one of those great sections of that book. Um, he says, prayer is not the expression of an idea. It is not the embodiment and speech of the position of absolute dependence that is assumed within the theology of grace. Prayer is the, expe- is the expression of a relationship. Mm. That is easy to say and sounds a little trite, but prayer is one word, help. That mm. is what prayer is. It is the cry for aid in the circumstance where there is no aid and no resources to provide aid. I think that's. Um, <laughs> it's so funny to hear you say this, though, because the, the the other thing, and um, the Zolls are both getting a shout out this episode, obviously. But the other thing I keep thinking about is your dad, and when I've called him for advice in ministry, one thing. So I'll like say whatever it is I'm dealing with, and then he'll say, "Is there something else that you need from me? Is there some other way I can help you?" <laughs> And no one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, um, I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> but like, it's a, it's such a, it's like, I don't even have to have a yes to that. But the fact that I get asked in such an earnest way makes me feel like heard. I don't know. Well, that's a, he, he definitely has that effect. And so does my, my mother's. Yeah. Uh, they, I, I grew up with that almost sometimes as a child of that, you, you get a little too cognizant of when you're being actively listened to and you want to say, what are, you, what are you thinking right now? What is tape is actually playing in your brain? And yet I'd still prefer that over the opposite. And, um, you do think about this in terms of, of ministry and relationships, and I, th- I think about it, you know, when people talk about their relationships with church and with God, they often give you, if, they've, if they're really angry, and um, then they sometimes or frequently will tell you some story where they didn't feel like they're being listened to. Mm-hmm. And then I've also been on the other side of that, though, where someone is um, under the auspices of quote unquote questions, what they're really doing is ranting. You know, I've just mm-hmm. got some questions, meaning I really want to tell you how you're wrong about everything. And then um, you, you, you it's, it can be hard over the years to listen because you do, you do be like, oh, I've heard this before. I know the phase this person's going through. Yeah. I'm very well aware of the type of background and the, the misconceptions and law and grace and all this stuff. And, um, and yet, even that is not a, uh, an escape from the, the humanizing tendency to listen to people. And of course, you see Jesus who would always, what does Spufford always say? He said like he, he treated each person he interacted with as though they were the only person uh, around. Um, mm-hmm. And Total I think there's, there's a sort of a, a one-on-one uh, aspect to who Christ was that I, I can't be, but I also know that I've experienced it sometimes. And when you've experienced within the context of like a, spiritual or church relationship like a then it's it can be truly healing mm, um, powerful well let's let's move on to the second piece uh, which is related it's by Dan Brooks he was writing in the outline uh, and the title is raising a person in a culture full of types here we go I don't know if you've checked in on tween culture lately but it is roughly divided into two parts incredibly boring rap songs about anti-anxiety medication and short internet videos about types of people. I have no quarrel with the first part, but the second part is messing up how my kid thinks. Online discourse is presently shaped by what I call type of guy theory. Mm. 
Its project is to name a series of essential identities that express themselves in certain behaviors. Uh, Speaking to the manager, reading David Foster Wallace, breaking up with someone who writes for The Cut, but are not limited to these acts. The bedrock assumption of type of guy theory is that identity exists independently from behavior. You are a type first and you behave accordingly. This idea that who you are abides somehow outside of what you do is the defining fantasy of our culture, and it appeals particularly to children. The world of the middle schooler is a world of types. My son talks incessantly about VSCO girls and Karens and other categories of people he has learned about from YouTube. He described a classmate as, quote, the kind of person who borrows your pencil and doesn't give it back, (laughs) i.e., she borrowed his pencil and didn't give it back. Readers of the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre will recognize here a formulation of his classic argument that existence precedes essence. Examples being uh, a soldier who deserts from war. People say he deserted because he's a coward, but really he's a coward because he deserted. This admittedly fine point is not just a matter of language. It also carries an ethical implication. The coward can't really be blamed for doing cowardly stuff because that's his nature. The same way you can't blame the kitchen table for being hard and heavy when you stub your toe. The illusion of a fixed nature gives us an excuse to repeat bad behavior. On the other hand, freedom is scary because nothing is more frightening than the feeling that you are about to change into something else. And then he speaks for himself as someone who, who said he's the type of person who never wanted kids uh, and, and the type of person uh, who, who didn't think of himself as someone who would make a good father. And then lo and behold, here he is years later raising a child who's dealing with these things and loving being a dad, but also struggling with it. Now, I don't want to, this is not an article I think to swallow in any sense wholesale. There's a bunch of caveats and qualifications I have as as, a, as someone who has a, what we call a low anthropology. But um, I did think it was interesting in a, in a time, world of uh, Myers-Briggs and of especially the Enneagram and uh, types, shorthand for Here other people. <laughs> Brace yourself. <laughs> Put the, putting them into categories that allow you to judge them and to sort of be done with them, um, yeah. especially oneself. Now, I'll just speak editorially as a Christian. I think you can you can be a type of person that does something wrong and still it, it not somehow excuse it. Like I think that just because you're not in charge of something doesn't mean it's you're you're not culpable for it. Um, however, I want to hear from you guys about this whole thing because we talk about this. You know, RJ's Florida man. Sarah, you've got fabulous hair today. You know, like oh, this, thank you, but. Uh, and you're um, Enneagram three. We all know it. Enneagram three. I just keep thinking about how I have this one black friend named Karen, and this has been a tough season for her. <laughs> what is a Karen? What, what is a Karen? A Karen's like, and she's also like too young to be a Karen. And God right? help you if you're she's a like boomer. Fifty. But if you're like, if you're like, so she's Gen X. But if you're like sixty-five, I mean, all women, all white women, sixty-five years old are. What are their names? Susan, Karen. Deborah, Nancy, Debbie, Nancy. You know Deborah. what I mean. So it's just it's the a Beck it's song. a Karen. Okay. I come from a Deborah. Okay. Um, her best friend was a Deborah. It was like the only name they knew in the Delta. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't. I I I don't know. This piece felt a. L- it's very funny. Dave did not read the parts of the expletives, but I was a big fan of the expletive He's parts. He's funny. I, this article is I not for the faint of heart. Yeah, amazing. Talk. Like, I was like, <laughs> oh my god. Um, but. I was a little like this. Just felt a little catastrophizing to me. Like I, I, I don't know. Like when I was a teenager, when I was in middle school, I was like, well, I'm definitely like more, you know, what my so-called life than clueless. Do you know what I mean? Like I definitely had. I mean, Shorthand. I think part of this is like young people figuring out identities for themselves and those things, you know, either coming together or falling apart. I mean, I think we all did that as young people. So, and maybe it's more public and more set in stone um, because these things are, you know, written down on the internet, but I don't know. I, I'm, it didn't kind of affect me as being as dramatic as he was making it to be. I don't know. But I'm just a Susan. Just, just a Susan. <laughs> That's Gosh, what you, a Susan, Susan would think. Uh, <laughs> That's what a Susan would think. Uh, well, Dave, just to like to call out the caveats, right? That the problem we have 
with this are these kind of Aristotelian categories that say you are what you do, right? And we as right. Christians don't believe that. We believe what Jesus says, you know, out of out of the heart proceeds all the all the the, the sin. It's not what goes into a man, it's what comes out of a man that makes yes. him unclean. Um, and, and we, yet, I, we disagree uh, with what, what Brooks is saying. On a that's right. Level. That's exactly. But there's, there is some mercy in what he's saying as well. And as someone who, you know, has ministered, ministered for quite a while to middle school kids, this actually makes sense to me because the, the beauty of middle schoolers is that they almost perfectly reflect whatever is going on in the pop culture at that moment. Whereas mm. high schoolers have a little more, they're, they're more suspicious, a little more reflexivity. Um, they're also maybe a little ashamed of what they actually like. So they're, they're hidden. You know, as whereas middle schoolers to me were always a bit more um, open and transparent. But of course, you're right. It's all about it is all about identity and our culture's obsession with identity. Um, but you know, we as Christians, we I was thinking about there's only one identity of a human being from a Christian perspective, and that is a sinner. You're just a mm. sinner, and it doesn't matter whether you're a Nancy or a Karen or a Susan or a, the type of person who who takes the pencil and doesn't give it back. You're a sinner, and that's uncomfortable, right, because you want to differentiate yourself from everybody else, and you want to sort of understand, um, I don't know, stake your claim in the universe or something. You know, I, I always come back to that scene in Ratatouille at the very end where he has his breakthrough, and he's like, I'm a chef! I'm a chef! It's, and, and that's supposed to be this cathartic moment. But like, well, you think you're a chef until you get your first bad review. Like, Dave, you think you're a writer until your next book bombs. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I think I'm a priest until things just don't really work out, you know, stop working out for whatever Florida reason. Florida man, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But so everyone is just a sinner, which which puts you in the same boat as everybody else. Um, but then the flip side of that is you're also, you ha- you're loved, right? You're a sinner who's loved. And so it doesn't matter what you think you are or what you Saint. want to be or, 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 or what you ought to be or whatever, you are loved and saved, which then gives you the freedom to just live your life, right? To just go out and do what you have to do and, and not worry about um, what you should do because of the kind of person you think you are or, or think you ought to be. And I mean, you don't have to put other people in a box either. You can sort of let them be what they are. Um, so, well, yeah, no, this- in a way, what you're saying is that the, this sort of typology, this over typologization, which can be very interesting and very helpful up to a point, um, is a way of writing the script for yourself in a way that is yeah. um, sometimes doesn't jive with what you're actually like. Oh, introverts are like this, extroverts are like that, and ultimately, you know, uh, you're RJ. And you know, we had to read in in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we had to, this the lectionary passage was Jesus really conflating. Um, you know, motive and action yes. in such a way that really, you know, w- when it came to adultery is the same thing as lust and anger is the same thing as murder. And and all of a sudden it's a leveling of identity. It's in a sort of a, a, the law accuses sort of wholesale the human race, but also puts you, well, us all into that category of sinner, which of course later we find out I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Like that's the good category, that's the category that God is ca- interested in. Um, and yet, I all, the other thing I thought about this is a, an article that was somewhat recently. This is a this is a way of is a natural expression of algorithm kind of thinking, where um, uh, everything being data streamed and vector plotted and money balled, uh, we start to relate to one another not as physical objects uh, or subjects, excuse me, but as types. Um, uh, we are speaking ag- algorithmically about other human beings rather than subjectively. And at, at this point, it's it's really starting to show itself in all and it sorts fits so of ways. neatly into the current political climate too, right? Where where depending on who, whatever political you know uh, candidate you support, that just says everything about you. <laughs> you know, then like okay, I, don't, I never need to talk to you again because I know everything about you based on who uh, you voted for or who you're thinking mm-hmm. about voting for, and and that's just it's so unhelpful on so many levels. The story that I keep thinking, talking around, is that. Like last week, we had a really rough morning, and um, for my fault as well as um, my eldest child's fault, and he was getting out of the car, and he's like in the car drawing a picture on the way to school, which is only like a minute and a half from our house, and the weather's terrible, and like I'm not looking to kill somebody with my car, so he's like, look at my picture, look at my picture, and I'm like, I can't look at your picture, like I have to get to school. And then, like, we, like, pull up, and he's like, you don't even like my picture, and like I haven't seen his picture yet. And I think my my gut response was just to, like, 
be like, he's gonna he's gonna have a terrible day. Mm-hmm. He's gonna be the kid yes. that yells in the morning and has a terrible day. So I roll down the window. So he's like literally yelling at me through the window. You don't even like my picture. And I roll down the window and I'm like, you're such a good boy. I hope you don't take this into your classroom today. And then he just like calmly looks at me and he goes, yes, ma'am. See you later. <laughs> I was like, he just needed this. Do you know what I mean? Like he, I don't know if he needed the typology like fragmented or he just needed a new set. Mm-hmm. But I think there is this element of like, how do we, I mean, it's so, it goes so beautifully with the idea of listening, but like, and I love the curiosity thing, RJ. Like, how are we curious about each other? How do we kind of break through these barriers that we put up that yes that 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 keep us from avoiding the painful truth that we're all sinners and we're all the same in so many ways but but also like you know just to be surprised i don't know wasn't that uh remember uh what uh leslie jameson quotes that uh that comedian we talked about it a a little while ago but that the uh, a miracle is the universe letting you know it can still surprise you yeah. And I would say God, you know, letting, you know, yeah, 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 that, yeah. that surprises um, and that as adults, we sort of switch ourselves off to surprises for the sake 100%. of convenience and just getting things done. But and, um, and just to name it, too, I think it's fair to say that to the degree that we all think of ourselves as a certain type of person, it's probably not probably not positive. And it's probably as a result of something hurtful that someone we love or who loved us said to us in the past you know, that we carry with us, that we think sort of defines who we are and, and to, to let those voices go. Um, I, say, to, I totally, I could not agree you more with you. And to hear, and to hear God say, well, and there's two things, right? Well, like, yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe it's, who knows, but you know what? I love you and I'm going to use you right. and I don't care and I'm with you. And like, Dave, I love what you said, like, yes, you're a sinner. And guess what? Jesus came for sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And mm-hmm. so the moment that you embrace that as being your sort of human identity, Christianly speaking, it's like immediately God is on your side when there's nothing you can do about it. Because um, it, his, his definitely concern behind it is, is thinking that he, that, that his son and his son's friends typecast one another yes, in ways absolutely. that are negative as you're yes. a bad person and you're always yes. going to do bad things. Yes. And there's a fatalism and a judgment of other people, especially, and with oneself that are, um, and the, the, there's so much hope in the Christian message that can acknowledge the fact that you, that you're, you're not a, a sinner because you sin, but you sin because you're a sinner. And, yeah. uh, that, that um, that also is not the final word about you either. You know that that's uh, God has has something more in storing, and the Holy Spirit transforms you into something that sometimes you're a stranger to yourself, and and the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. And isn't that incredible? Uh, CJ linked to uh, a, an article in last weekend's Weekender about a family who's um, a woman whose kids had gotten. Um, killed in a drunk driving accident uh, and there were t- she was the writer is in New Zealand and the writer was talking about uh, grace being the only hope for uh, people who who uh, I don't know how exactly I'm connecting this but it was one of these moments of uh, a woman almost being surprised by her response to the worst thing that's ever happened to her and uh the it was a holy spirit type thing being played out on the national stage now we've talked a lot about families in this episode. We, you know, we wrote a family issue for the Mockingbird magazine, and I thought we we're just going to jump into it. David Brooks uh, wrote a mammoth article for the Atlantic Monthly called "The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake." The nuclear family was a mistake, and it's tracing. I think it sounds like seeds for a new book of his. But he writes about uh, how once families gathered around the television, now each person has their own screen. There's been a, a decentralization that's happened among families. Uh, it's the story of our times. Of a once a dense cluster of many siblings and extended kin has fragmented into ever smaller, more fragile forms. Uh, He uh, then goes on to say that a certain family ideal has become engraved in our minds of a married couple with 2.5 kids. We think of the American family, many of us still revert to this ideal. We take it as a norm, even though this wasn't the way most humans lived during the tens of thousands of years before 1950, and it isn't the way most humans have lived in the 55 years since 1965. Today, only a minority of American households are traditional two-parent nuclear families, and only one-third of American individuals live in this kind of family. From 1970 to 2012, the share of households consisting of married couples with kids has been cut in half. 
this is what uh, he says. When you put everything together, we're likely living through the most rapid change in family structure in human history. The causes are economic, cultural, and institutional all at once. People who grow up in a nuclear family tend to have a more individualistic mindset than people who grow up in a multi-generational extended clan. People with an individualistic mindset then tend to be less willing to sacrifice self for the sake of family, and the result is more family disruption. People who grow up in disrupted families have more trouble getting the education they need to have a prosperous career, and people who don't have prosperous careers have trouble building stable families because of the financial challenges and other stressors, and the children in those families become more isolated and more traumatized. Uh, the culture, our culture is oddly stuck, it would appear. We want stability and rootedness, but also mobility, dynamic capitalism, and the liberty to adopt the lifestyle we choose. We want close families, but not the legal, cultural, and sociological constraints that made them possible. I often ask African friends who have immigrated to America what most struck them when they arrived. Their answer is always a variation on the theme of the loneliness. It's the empty suburban street in the middle of the day, maybe with a lone mother pushing a baby carriage on the sidewalk, but nobody else around. Yeesh. A lot more in this article, and he is very uh, uh, careful to note that in recent years, because of financial pressures, you see more, you know, you see the in-law suite as part of the home, you know, where the in-laws come and live, and uh, you have the, the millennial suite, you know, where the kids live in the basement now, and, and extended families kind of coming back into vogue because of economic issues, and yet... Um, it, yeah, but I mean, like, they're all pissed about it, but yes. yeah. He's upset. Yeah, he, this this article uh, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um, it rubbed both conservatives and liberals the wrong way. I mean, he's, he says That's it's good you know, for it's him. That's good, Dave. That's exactly. Good for him. <laughs> no, I mean, he's, he, he does say that it's uh, – we, we, we discuss the problems confronting the country, but we don't talk about family enough because it feels too judgmental too uncomfortable, maybe even too religious, but the blunt fact is that the nuclear family has been crumbling in slow motion for decades, and many of our other problems with education, mental health, addiction, the quality of the labor force stem from that crumbling. There is so much that could be said. I mean, there's just absolutely no question that our culture has prioritized economics over relationships. You know, the most important thing is to go out and, and make your way and get yours and have your individuality. And, and at the same time, like my father who uh, grew up in Holland as one of seven children, Catholic family, and was the only one who left Holland, but was a very curious young man. And he told me one time that his father, uh, his father told him, um, don't read books, it'll make you want things, you know? Oh, and it did, it did. You know, he came to the to the States and, um, and I don't know, I look at my family, I love my brothers and I love spending time with them and we're just like strewn all over the country. <laughs> and I look at these families in Houston and elsewhere where you have sort of, you know, vaguely multi-generational existences because people all live in close proximity to one another. And it's kind of amazing and foreign to me. And yet also a little bit scary, you know, because it's like you don't want people uh, sort of up in your business um, at that level. And then I think about the television we watch, you know, the, the most um, popular television shows is always about families or pseudo families, you know, going back to like Cheers, where like the bar was a family, or the office mm -hmm. was a family, or Friends was it was a family, uh, Seinfeld, Modern Shameless. Family, Modern Family, all of these. So it, it's so clear we have this hunger for belonging and connectedness, but um, but we satisfy that through living vicariously through these fictional you know television characters um, rather than having it having it ourselves. And then you know what he says about chosen families. I'm glad he's optimistic, but when push comes to shove, they're just not the same. You know, it's much easier to just kind of leave it behind, I think, than someone you're actually blood related to. I don't know if you guys, if you guys agree with that, but um, you just got a frowny face on your face, Sarah. Like, I mean, Me? we, yeah. Well, I mean, we very clearly, like, right, like we have chosen family grandparents for our children yeah. from the church. Yeah. And so I think. Um, if there's been a loss there, if there's been a major disruption there and you don't have family in that way, yeah. um, you it's kind of all you've got. So yeah. like I hear you, it's not the same. Um, but it's like when when people are willing to 
you know, take on that mantle, you know, when they're willing to go sleep on the floor at Moody Gardens for a Boy Scout camp out with your third grader. I can't even talk about it. Like, so that he feels like he's a grandfather. Like, there is something about that for me that like, I, you know, I know it's not the same, but like, it's, it's such a gift anyway, Mm. you know. Mm. And maybe I've I've never, I've never had that, Sarah. I don't know many people who, that's incredible. Well, they're, they're, I think the church at its best can be this, but That's you right. also get. I always get nervous when because there was a church as community and this buzzword that was usually people just wanting the church to be their family. And on the one hand, you want to say, well, that's that's because they don't have a family or their family's been a source of a pain. And and uh, but then you also know that a church can't really be a mom and dad and a brother and a sister in the same right. way. And while it's better than nothing, as you just, I mean, or and, and if, when you certainly find really like kind of proxy aunts and uncles and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful. And we really have lost something by not having these extended families. Um, the church, it's, it's not first and foremost to be a replacement for your family outside of right. the fact that you're adopted into God's family. Um. I'm also struck, one thing he says in there, which I found to be deeply true, is that uh, he says that nations where a fifth of the people live alone, like Denmark and Finland, are a lot richer than the nations where almost no one lives alone, like Latin, like the ones in Latin America or Africa. Um, he says that the first, it seems that the, the market wants us to live alone or with just a few people. That way we are mobile, unattached, and uncommitted and able to devote an enormous number of hours to our job. So we can be mm. more productive. And second, when people who are raised in developed countries get money, they buy privacy. And I they buy loneliness. Yes. It's really what they buy. Yes. The amount of times I've watched people climbing up the ladder in our particular context, they move out of a neighborhood where there are close uh, houses around onto estates where they um, – not always, but it's a very common narrative to watch people then go out there and their fa- their marriages to fall apart, um, and they they come back. Gosh, I didn't really realize how much it meant to be closer to people and to have neighbors who could who could just keep me sane and not just staring at a my light fixtures or something. That's that's such the vision of hell from the Great Divorce. You know, C.S. Lewis's book where where every, mm-hmm. the hell where everyone gets exactly what they want, but they keep on moving farther and farther away from each other because they just can't stand to be around each other. You know, yeah. Um, there is something sort of good actually about forced intimacy and and having to rub shoulders with people that are different than you and and learning to actually deal with conflict and and uh, but also just have have the joy of relationships. You know. Um, but they're, uh, it's, 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 it's sad when those momentary difficulties trump, um, all of the benefits that come with being in a relationship with someone else. I mean, I do think this fits somewhat into like what we were talking about earlier. It's funny, these narratives we have about ourselves, like I'm not the kind of person who, you know, I mean, who wants I, a big I, family. I like a small yeah, family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think about, just my relationship with communities of women and how I've often been in communities where I felt like I didn't quite click, you know, certainly like when I was in high school and was obviously like this, like I am right now, you know, (laughs) (laughs) only, only in Mississippi and, you know, people would say things to me like, why are you always quoting Time Magazine, and it was like, because I guess we're the only house in the neighborhood that gets, I don't know, it's not that highfalutin, but my parents get magazines, you know, it's like, and then being an Ole Miss, and, you know, so many people pledged Greek, and I didn't, and I, you know, it was really hard to find community. I mean, I did, but it was hard, and then we were in New York, which was its own sort of struggle, just because we were in these, you know, especially this really upper echelon small town, and I remember this is like just me venting. So sorry. This is the venting portion of the podcast. But this, I was trying to relate to this mom who's in our house and we're talking about cleaning. And I was like, I just like, I can't, you know, I can't stay on top of it. She's like, I just let it go. I just don't worry about it. She's like, I just hire a cleaning lady. And I was like, we can't do that. And now we're here. Um, we're also in a rectory, which means like we don't own our house. The church does. And it's also in, you know, it's in an area where a lot of moms don't work. Right. And there's, um, you know, the houses are constantly kind of being redone on the inside, which is really fascinating because that's not a thing. I don't know if the church will ever do that to this house. I don't know, you know. Um, it's 
it's a thing where like, do I tell myself, well, I'm not the kind of person who's in relationship with the communities God's put me in. Mm. Do I say, do I label myself that way? I mean, I can, I know people who do, I have before, but what's the loss there? It's massive. It's a massive loss. Like I'm not, I, I, I feel like I can't count on these women in my neighborhood and I'm not going to let them think that they can count on me. You know what I mean? Like, what does that say? What does that mean for me? So I don't know. I, I, thought about that in reading this because I do live in a community that really there are kids always out on the street and it is this beautiful place and like how do I step into that as you know someone who's you know brings a my so-called life narrative to a clueless community you know what I mean (laughs) (laughs) Enneagram three (laughs) um well I I I I don't know what to say. I just I always think of uh, Woody Allen's film Radio Days about his growing oh, up in, in in Brooklyn within this huge family, this huge Jewish family with all these characters and everyone fighting constantly but loving and and you're you are taken care of in a way and I don't think that's necessarily means that to uh, poo poo the nuclear family. My nuclear family is uh, you know been so much life for me i just i it's not like the extended family uh denies the nuclear family that it's, right. it's in there and that would be uh i remember my my wife's family they all moved onto the same street for a little while and it's because there was one marriage that had fallen apart and they kind of needed help raising kids and among that sort of echelon of um that kind of the, the prep school world where they were that was v- no one was making decisions based upon proximity to uh loved ones in that way you were really more to making proximity towards loved ones pain right yes. i mean that's Incredible, and it ended up shaping her values and everything, but also it provided a much more a rich kind of living experience. So, talking of communities, uh, we're, we're going to end here by talking about Ben Madison. Our own Ben Madison uh, has written an article called "I I Really Want to Skip Church." <laughs> I really want to skip church. And he writes, I'm uh, constantly trying to get out of church on Sunday mornings, which would probably be fine if I wasn't a pastor. Um, Then he references there's an article that had been making the rounds in his discussion among his uh, sort of professional Christian uh, friends about the centrality of Sunday worship. um, That The the writer basically says that uh, Sunday morning worship should not be optional and it should be uh, your excuse for getting out of everything else rather than vice versa. And I admit to feeling that I need to be in church. I need God's grace, mercy, and presence in my life constantly. Things get worse when it's not there. I need to gather with others, need to hear the gospel, need to be a part of this ragtag, imperfect, messy body and family we call church. I need to be reminded that Christ died for my sins and saved me from myself. I know that I need church. I know that I should want to go to church, I can't, but I can't help but feel this article gets one huge thing wrong, which is church is hard. It's hard mm. for a lot of reasons, work schedules, young families, calendar conflicts, personal conflicts, trauma, history, uh, bad sermons that leave you more exhausted than when you like, came in. Uh, uh, you know, it's just not as tasty as the endless mimosa brunch. It requires more conversation than hot yoga. Church is hard because it's the wild card in the God-people relationship. It's hard because life and people and relationships are, and just existing are hard. Church is hard because of the exact same reason it is good. The people who are there. So as much as I'd love to tell people church should be your excuse for missing everything else, I'm acutely aware of two things. That church might be the reason uh, you are missing love, grace, and mercy in your life. And two, church might be a lot more work than you can handle at the moment. Um, I'll get to his ending, but before I do, what what do you think is is of Ben's uh, opening here? Um, I saw the same article floating around that Ben's referencing, and he's so he's so gracious because I saw it. I saw all these people posting it, and I was like, "Job security," you know. It's like all these clergy are like, "You should prioritize church." I, I so I was so grateful for this response because I I um I just it it really astonishes me how people I and this is gonna sound like an ageist thing, and I apologize. Maybe it's just a gendered thing. We can just blame all men, and especially all men over fifty. Um, that'll be our title for this episode. Um, that, that type, that type, that type. Um, 
I think they honestly God forget how hard it is to get to church. Like I it like or I mean I think the worst thing is that clergy especially have never had to get to church, right? Like in the same way, um they've never had to get a family to the ch- to church. They've never had to have these hard conversations. Like they're there, they're paid, it's great. And so um, I really appreciated that Ben, especially as a guy, um, and especially as someone who's ordained, wrote this because I, for me, the the real danger in it, in us forgetting how hard it is for people to get there, is honestly the way that we preach the gospel. Because I think that people put this effort into getting there, and then they get there, and what they hear is bad news for their weary hearts. What they what they get there and hear is that you know they may have made it here, but gosh, there's more there's more work to do later. Or they may have heard it here. My least favorite sermon, um, and I would just like everyone who preaches regularly to write this down, is when people preach about who the people who are not there. Mm. That's like the worst sermon. And and the thing is, like, I used to think that was just in my, like, you know, waning mainline denominational context. They say that in non-denom churches all the time. Like, I have a friend who literally had to stop going to, like, one of those big, happy, you know, non-denominational churches because she's like, every time we got there, they talked about who wasn't there. And she's like, we're here. We need to hear something, you know? Like, yeah. so I, I, I think for me— I know Ben wasn't talking exactly about preaching, but I think for clergy who listen to this, it's really important to read his piece in light of our preaching. Yeah, I can completely relate to what Ben is saying about the sun going down on Saturday night and your blood pressure rising a little bit and you're getting a little bit more uh, irritable. Uh, there was one year when Valentine's Day fell on Saturday night and we went out to dinner. It was not a great dinner. Jamie was like, yeah, we probably shouldn't do this again on Valentine's. Uh, Valentine's yeah. Day, if it falls on a Saturday, we'll find a different night to do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, Sunday morning can be, uh, it can be stressful as a as a clergy person too, I mean, as he says, you know, and you're, you're, you're worried, how, how are things going to go? Who's going to show up? You know, um, how's my, how's my sermon going to, how's my sermon going to go? But Sarah, I, I just love what you said about, um, remembering how hard it is to get there. And, and, uh, I've tried to say that on Sunday mornings, you know, especially when I've been presiding over a family service and I, you know, mm-hmm. I, which I sometimes, we had, a, we had a family service at a church where I served and I called it church for people who could barely make it to church. Um, and, and I had a seminary professor who talked about, you know, he said, when you look out in the congregation, just remember that a lot of people have walked over broken, broken glass to get there, mm-hmm. you know, and to treat them like, uh, like sufferers. So, um, yeah, yeah to bring I, good news, to bring good news. Sorry, Sarah, what were you going to say? No, no, no. I just, I do think it's important also to acknowledge like that it's more than just families, which I think Ben does a really good job of, but I know so many like middle-aged, um, boomer aged people who like just can't do it anymore. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Cause like they went to church for decades. They drug their kids there. They, they were made to feel like church was like this, like giant, you know, it was like the Hindenburg and they were like up there just like slapping on patches. Like I'll cover Sunday school and then crawling underneath and like, I'll do Alder Guild. And like their kids leave the house and they're like, I cannot do it anymore. You know? Yeah. And and I'll, and I'll make a confession. You know, he talked about uh, going to church on when he's on vacation. I don't ever go to church on vacation. I don't. And, and there's part of me, and maybe this was the part of the well, Talk I guess he was, he was raised in New Jersey. I was raised in uh, Connecticut and New York. I'm still kind of amazed that like anyone shows to church, up to church on Sunday. I'm just so thankful. Uh, yeah. I'm just like, really? Like you decided yeah. to get up this morning and come here when you could have slept in and like he says, had a mimosa yeah. and read the New York Times and just like, I'm amazed yeah. that anyone, sh- I'm just so um, thankful and, and amazed that these wonderful people uh show up at church on Sunday. So I, I totally related to that. I, I was fascinated by that as well because we always sort of have that quandary for vacation. And, you know, we're about to do sabbatical this summer. Mm-hmm. And the what Ben describes is exactly – you are smart to not go to church because what he describes is exactly what happens. You just like – you just sit there and you're like, man, that sermon was shitty. You know, like you just – it's just judgment the whole time. We even, I forget like, what day it is. Like there's been a few times when we're, we're on a road trip on vacation. Like we could really use some Chick-fil-A. And we showed up to Chick-fil-A oh, we're like, why does. is it closed? <laughs> What's going – oh my gosh, it's Sunday. It's like I don't even know what day of the week it is. 
Um, and I will say, I've, I've, forsaking and clergy I've, on vacation. And to speak to your point about people who can't do church anymore, I've met a couple different people since I got to um, to West Palm who did exactly that, who took a break from church for about 10 years. Um, yeah. But usually it was either the result of a, a real significant trauma they experienced at church where they're just like, I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. Or one woman told me, she's like, I went to church forever and then I just got tired of every single week being told what I wasn't doing and to work yeah. harder, try more, do more. And I just couldn't do it. So I stopped going for 10 years. Um, but now that they're, those people are back and it's, um, it's kind of a joy, you know, I think for them yeah, for my, me to have them back. My conundrum is always when you preach the gospel and you preach, I think the grace of God and the, the, you know, the forgiveness of sins. Um, sometimes people are like, okay, I get it. Now I don't really, I want to sort of sleep in on Sunday mornings. And, um, I have seen that happen, and I I, th- I always I think that the challenge, at least from my our our uh, my rector here, Paul Walker, is always like no matter when someone comes, like whenever they make excuses about how they haven't been there for a while, people are always so self conscious about that. You just you just it's a Mr. Magoo situation. I think that's how my my father even put it. It's just sort of you, you, you're not you, even if you are keeping score in your head, you just can yeah. pretend that you're not, and it's great. I mean, as as Ben says, it's a terrible business model to treat people the same whether they come twice a week or twice a year. It's not a good uh, <laughs> business model, and yet that's also something beautiful because I I around people who tell me that they they would miss anything, but they won't miss church because it's the aroma of life, you know, it's the juice of life. And everywhere else they go, they hear that they're not enough and that they just need to be more and uh, work harder and that they've, they've, they, they're holding on for dear life uh, for Sunday. And I know that that can be a seasonal thing. Um, the amount of times where I thought someone has stopped coming to church because of something we did or something we said, uh, and then it just turns out to have been a circumstantial thing where a baby wasn't sleeping or a, 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 an in-law was, you know, developing Alzheimer's or something like that, and then they come back. And if 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 you come in with this sort of you need to prioritize getting to church, I mean, yeah. that will I think that kind of law will uh, push them away. Well, the temptation as people stop going to church or they're able to go to church less or they're just so freaking overwhelmed that that's it's it, as with parents of small kids they just it's the most they can do to get there every once in a while. I mean, the temptation yeah. is to shout from the rooftops is to write things as like church should be your excuse for missing everything else. Is to yell just go to church, damn it. You know, blah 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 right. th- that church sign that right. says blah 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 just go to church. And um and, uh, you know, I think that that's, unfortunately, as tempting as that is, it's the same thing if, with my kid, just like, just talk faster, you know? Right. Um, it's 100. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, even if I have a good friend who says, you know, what's the, the only key to marriage I can find out is to, is to keep going to church and keep having sex. <laughs> like, that's the... <laughs> <laughs> and, and but like the subtext, I mean, I think that's really brilliant, Dave, because I think the subtext to that is when we when we yell at people like you need to prioritize church over everything else, what we're saying is you're – well, gosh, you're – it's sad. You're just not the kind of person that goes to church. You're not the kind. You know I, mean? I never thought – You're of, not the I kind. I want to – I mean, we have a – I feel like I constantly run into people like, you know, I never really thought of myself as a churchgoer, and yeah. here I am, and I yeah. don't really understand, yeah, 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 but yeah. I never – We limit, right? We limit when we say things like, like that. Like when – never – if you're in a church that is, is on Christmas or Easter says, well, welcome to everyone who's never shown up the rest of the year – Run. run or or at least uh pray uh for your own heart and especially for the preacher because that is a that is a that's a resentful statement and it's probably the result of enormous wells of rage that are that are just yeah. coming to the surface and ben says i think i'll close with him he says the answer to encouraging folks uh the answer um to, dis- to discover for themselves the benefits of corporate worship is not to shame them, burden them, or f- fact fact them to death. The answer is the only one we can really give because the answer, it really isn't about us, but what God does through and for and in and around us. The answer is about God acting first. This is not a satisfying answer. It's not satisfying because we don't get to feel righteous for being there and we don't get to judge others for not being there. It's not satisfying because it sees people as they are, not as they could or should be. As messy, busy, stressed out, over-anxious, over-scheduled, tired, lonely, beloved children of God. It's not satisfying because it forces us to remember that God loves us even before we loved God or showed up at church. 
It forces us to, to provide an actual accounting of just how much we don't love God and just how much God loves us anyway. Mm. This answer, I'm sorry to say, does not make me any less eager to skip church on Sunday morning, but it does remind me that God loves me in church and out of church. And so if you do, by the unmerited, unsurpassable, incomprehensible grace of God, make it out of bed on Sunday morning with enough time to make it to church 20 minutes late after getting the kids dressed and fed, the dogs watered and walked, the family out the door, we'll be glad to see you, especially if you're the pastor. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, Lots lots of ground to cover, but... um, I hope to. I'll look forward to hearing what you said when I listen back to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.